At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a walk-off grand slam or a base hit to center field. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Pet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Parents, if you've ever experienced bedtime battles with the kids, I'm going to let you into a little secret. The Koala Moon podcast has revolutionized over 20 million bedtimes with parents like you calling it life-changing and the perfect nighttime routine. With original kids' bedtime stories and cosy sleep meditations, every episode has been specially designed to make bedtimes a dream. Listen to Koala Moon on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Discover a new educational and interactive podcast, Stories for Kids by Lingo Kids. Our episodes are packed with fun activities. Right, Elliot? Oh, yes! We went shape hunting around the block, and we found spheres and cubes on the street. That was great fun. Join Stories for Kids, the Lingo Kids podcast, inspiring you to learn while having fun. Listen to Stories for Kids on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Hardwood Handicappers Podcast. They're a bunch of guys who ain't never played the game, and they never got the girls in high school, and they just want to get in the game. With your host, Jonathan Von Tobel. See, the thing is, you guys look at me, you see the backwards hat, the uh, gray socks, the funky outfit, and you say, now this guy's a chump, am I right? No. Geek. Geek. Only on the VSIN Podcast Network. Yo, what up, folks? Late night edition of Hardwood Handicappers. I uh, wanted to wait. You know, I talked to Dieter Kurtenbach, who uh, is going to join us a little bit later in the program. Uh, but we talked to Dieter earlier today. Um, for those who do not know, uh, Dieter, of course, covers the Golden State Warriors, lots of Bay Area stuff for the Bay Area News Group, and uh, does stuff for KNBR as well. Uh, but Dieter's going to be giving us a full insight into the Warriors Mavericks Western Conference Finals series. Hey, he's going to join us in just a few minutes, but I wanted to wait to post this because I wanted to see what happened in Game 1 of the Eastern Conference Finals, recap that, give us a brief preview of Game 2, and uh, yeah, all that fun stuff. So before we get to Dieter, let's talk about what we just watched today. 118-107, final score, Miami Heat get it done against the Boston Celtics, and man, oh man. I, so I like, like I always say, I think I feel like I say this a lot, and I always want to stress it because I'm just a fan of the game, but... I think you always got to start with the good performances because it's just cool to see good players do really good things. Uh, and Jimmy Butler was incredible tonight. 41 points, 12 and 19 from the floor, 17 of 18 from the free throw line. Uh, nine rebounds, five assists, four steals, three blocks. Dude, he, like, <laughs> he was incredible today, Jimmy Butler. And the cool thing is, one of my favorite moments in, in, like, in a basketball game is like fourth quarter when the team that's up is starting to kind of let go a little bit of the lead, right? And in the the, uh, the Heat did just that in this fourth quarter. There was a one point in this game where they had cut it down, the Celtics did, to about an eight-point lead. Actually, no, excuse me, seven-point lead with about 128 left to go. And um, and you just see guys just take over the game. And Butler that did that. There was one point where they cut it to 10 and uh, with 230 left to go. And this is the moment I'm talking about. And Butler makes like a spinning, falling away 11-foot two-pointer to kind of put the, to uh, put Miami back up by 12. And it's just like little moments like that 
are so much fun to watch because it's clearly a dude who's just like, no, we're not losing today, guys, and I'm going to make sure that this is going to happen. Uh, So Butler was awesome. It was a really stellar performance from this team in the second half. I think the uh, stat was six points in the paint uh, for (laughs) the Boston Celtics in the second half. Like it, It was nuts watching what the Miami Heat were able to do on that end of the floor uh, defensively in the second half against the Boston Celtics. So what's the takeaway here as we move forward and look at what potentially game two is going to be in this series? Numbers are up. Miami opening up as a four-point favorite, total a little bit higher, 206. Um, but I think when you recap what we just watched between these two, it, the, third, like the first thing that sticks out to you is actually that the Boston Celtics, I don't think they come out of this feeling terrible about themselves. Um, they outscore the Miami Heat in three out of the four quarters of play. Won the uh, first quarter 28-25. The big quarter was their second, 34-29. And as I mentioned, in the fourth, they really cut into that deficit and outscored the Miami Heat 31-25. to So two 30-plus point quarters for the Boston Celtics. Three of the four quarters, they outscored the Miami Heat. But it was that third quarter, man. That third quarter was abysmal for them. They get outscored 39-14. It's lazy turnover after lazy turnover. It's bad passes off to the wing. It's Tatum not even realizing that there's a help defender and Butler right there on the weak side. Like, there was just so many bad mistakes by the Boston Celtics in that third quarter. And that's ultimately what led in uh, to this victory for the Miami Heat. It was the biggest difference in this game. And if you look at it, one, one of the things that I think I pretty much stressed when we talked about this and especially on the hardwood handicappers episode on Sunday which was what the Miami Heat can do successfully especially on offense if they're forcing turnovers outside of Butler going nuts they're going to be able to get out and run and be effective and get some easy buckets and they did just that off of steals in this game an offensive rating 150 for Miami added 3.3 points per 100 possessions off of those steals 80 percent of a team of their team's steals led to a transition play Miami was really good in that area of the floor, and transition really worked out for them. But really, what ultimately made the difference for them, too, was Butler, who was incredible. Led them to a 112.2 half-court offensive rating. But I think when you look at this overall, and you're taking away from this what you do from the second, or from you know, from this game to go to the second, the first thing you start with is, is Marcus Smart going to be available? Now, I don't know if Marcus Smart is the defensive player of the year, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, they needed him in this game. And it's not so much that he would shut down Jimmy Butler, but when Peyton Pritchard was out there, Jimmy Butler targeted him consistently. Uh, was going right after him. And Peyton Pritchard's he he tries. He's a very good effort guy. But you're giving up so much in that matchup against Jimmy Butler. And that really, really was apparent in a lot of these late buckets for Jimmy Butler when he was going after Peyton Pritchard. Uh, those minutes, right, for Pritchard, turn into Marcus Smart minutes when he's uh, healthy and available. They need a Pritchard out there, too, to help them with some sort of offense because they were not performing very well. Uh, shot the ball really poorly, 32.4% Boston did. Got nothing at the rim, 19 to 32, 59.4%. That was a massive difference for them. Um, so you, you understood why Pritchard was out there. There's not a, a slight against Ima Udoka. Um, and he was aggressive. <laughs> there was a play in which and I, it kind of – it was one of those where, like, I think they were down by eight, and Pritchard has the ball, and it was actually still a winnable game. Not a winnable game, but a game in which you can probably make it tight. There was less than two minutes to go, and Pritchard gets the ball, gets uber-aggressive, drives into the paint, and he's got Bam Adebayo in front of him and Jimmy Butler trailing him, and for some reason, Tiny Peyton Pritchard decides to try to go up with the ball and just gets completely swallowed up by both Jimmy Butler and Bam Adebayo. Uh, and then the ball ends up going the other way, and you know the rest is history. So 
kudos to Peyton Pritchard for really trying. Kudos to Peyton Pritchard uh, for putting in a really, really strong effort. But I think that's the first thing you look at. You go, okay, as we as we look forward to game two, what's going to be one of the changes? And that's going to be if Marcus Smart's going to be available, at least you get an adequate body in front of Jimmy Butler. Not that Marcus Smart is going to shut down Jimmy Butler by any means, but you're going to be able to win more of those possessions than you did tonight if Marcus Smart is the primary defender on Jimmy Butler as opposed to one Peyton Pritchard. So that's going to be interesting to see if Smart's going to be available here. Obviously, the midfoot sprain is what's bothering him. MRI came back negative, and that's why part of the reason why I bet on the Celtics today, taking a chance that he was going to be available. But that and the Horford news obviously throws a wrench in that plan. And still, the Celtics were right there in, throughout this game. So that's the first thing you look at. And obviously, the second is... How do you generate a little bit more out of your offense? And I don't even know so much within four feet of the basket because they were doing a pretty good job. They got 32 attempts within four feet. You got to shoot at a higher clip, and they drew five shooting fouls. Um, but you got to find something a little bit more in terms of your offense. And we'll see what the tracking numbers say in terms of you know open shots and how many they got. Um, but you got to shoot better. 11 to 34 is not going to cut it, especially against a team that's going to allow you to take three point shots. You got to hit a bunch of those. And the efforts just got to be a little bit better if you're the Boston Celtics. As I mentioned, some of those lazy passes, it was just inexcusable. Some of the turnovers uh, that they were creating for themselves, especially in that third quarter. And little things, right? Like free throw shooting's got to be better. Jalen Brown today with another poor performance from the free throw line. Um, it was nice. He hasn't been good for now three games. And that's kind of worrisome if you're looking at Brown. But he missed four free throws today with six to ten from the free throw line. And uh, Boston overall, just 75% compared to the 88.2% on 34, uh, 34 attempts for the Miami Heat. And that's the other part about that, too. you got to be able to guard Jimmy Butler without fouling him. And he was so good at getting to the free throw line today, uh, which ultimately was uh, one of the many reasons why the Miami Heat won this game. So as we look forward in this series, adjustment again. So we're talking about now for game three, or excuse me, game two, game three. Uh, game two, Miami a four-point favorite. Total of 206. There's another, there's a four and a half out there that's at BetMGM. And BetMGM is always a little off in terms of the market there. Um, first inclination is to come back and back Boston one more time here, uh, catching four. Do think that Marcus Smart's going to play, so you're taking a little bit of a gamble there. We don't know about Horford because the COVID protocols can get a little complex in terms of when he reported, what the symptoms are, all of those things. Um, they I do, obviously do need Horford. But Smart, I think, is the bigger linchpin here. If, if they're going to be able to cover a number like this, it's going to be with Marcus Smart out there. So Boston catching four is going to be the way that I'm going to go for this game. And let's see if it gets to four and a half and see what the market does in the coming days. My first thought is that this is going to head toward Boston. Because again, you know, get the Heat deserve a bunch of credit. And this isn't to say that they're going to lose this game in game two. Um, but when you're outscored three out of the four quarters, it's a pretty positive sign for the team that lost. You just can't lose a quarter by 25 points, which is what the Boston Celtics did. And we're seeing an adjustment on this total, too, from 203, the closing number for game one, to 206. I got a sneaky suspicion that the uh, the betters are going to take this under again. But I got to tell you, and I wrote about this in the uh, article today, I think this is a little bit of a higher scoring series than the market's given it credit for. I mean, the Celtics showed that they have the ability to get inside the paint. Jason Tatum was super aggressive in the first half, got a little less aggressive in the second and started to get pretty frustrated. Brown showed some really good pop getting into the paint as well, and they made some nifty finishes too. Robert Williams was brilliant early on, and that switching defense, I mean, that's going to make a pretty big difference, right? When you're switching off on some of those pick and rolls and Robert Williams is able to catch it uh, on a lob or 
if Bam Adebayo is going to come up to help on some of those pick and rolls and leave Robert Williams standing essentially in the dunker spot uncontested for a drop down or another lob, that's going to make a pretty big difference. And Boston should still be able to exploit that as you kind of move forward in this series. Not that Williams is going to go off for uh, the game that he had at the beginning and overall finishing with 18 points and nine rebounds. But Williams should be a really effective piece for them too. Horford should help whenever he comes back. But I, I really want to see one Marcus Smart come back. And, and, when, and when Smart comes back too, that also means that Derek White goes to the bench. White today was not very good. He only had three points, one of four shooting. He missed his only three-point attempt. Uh, he's been kind of weird with, I don't know how many of you mentioned, I've uh, noticed this, um, but if you remember back in game seven, the first half, he had a wide open three that he passed up to dribble into Brooke Lopez and got completely swatted at the rim. He had another moment like that today where he had a wide open three-point attempt and instead tried to dip, dribble into traffic. And ultimately, and actually led, I think, to an assist, if I remember correctly, or a foul. It was a positive play at the end. Uh, but regardless, White's been a little passive the last couple of games. Don't know what that's about, but I think Smart coming back, putting uh, putting Smart in the starting lineup, pushing White back down to a bench roll where he seemed more comfortable um, is probably the way to go. And you do wonder, too. I mean, Pritchard was good today, 30 minutes, 4 of 11 from three-point range. They were only outscored by one point when Pritchard was out there, so he'll probably get still some more minutes Oh, but I, I I wonder how they're going to use Aaron Neesmith going forward. Neesmith was really good in his 11 minutes. Uh, they weren't outscored in his minutes. They had plus minus a zero with Neesmith out there. Had three blocks, was tremendous in terms of some of the energy plays, and wasn't great from three-point range. Took some pretty bad shots overall, uh, but still gave him some pretty good minutes in a limited amount of time. So I would expect that maybe Neesmith is going to find a little bit more time out there. But I think when it comes down to this, man, this Heat team, they're really good, and the they're not the, the the most disrespected one seed of all time that that narrative needs to stop i immediately saw um was it the fed mgm twitter account that tweeted out like this is the this is the most disrespected one team i could remember ever and it took me five seconds to find out that the boston celtics uh were 20 to 1 odds or 20 to 1 favorites i guess you want to call it um the year that they had isaiah thomas and they were the one seed and almost lost they were down two nothing to the Chicago Bulls, that 1-8 matchup, they were 20-1 to to win a title when the postseason started. So not the most disrespected one seed in history of the NBA or in the history of sports, as much as we would like um, to make that true. So as we kind of talk about this and as we move forward, uh, Boston, I, again, you know, Tim asked me, Tim Murray, when I was on their show earlier today, um, does this take you off of Boston? And I would say no. I think if you liked Boston in this series, I think you're still feeling pretty positive. You know, the home team holds serve. It's fine. You just want to take one of these first two games. You lost the first. See if you can grab the second and move back home with home court advantage. But when you outscore your opponent by three out of four point or three out of four quarters, when you find success against a really solid team defensively, especially in the first half, um, and you can replicate that, you correct yourself a little bit in terms of shooting. You get one of your better backcourt defenders back so they can take some of those possessions away and match up with a dude like Jimmy Butler. I think if you're the Boston Celtics, you're feeling uh, okay as much as you can after a loss like this on the road to the Miami Heat. But it's going to be a fun series, man. If, if anything, if, this, if today thought is anything, it is going to be an absolute fun series. All right, enough of me. Uh, let's not waste any more time. Let's get to Dieter Kurtenbach, who joins us uh, on the other side, and we're going to get some details on this Western Conference final series that I got to tell you, um, I was telling Tim Murray and Sean King uh, on uh, Nightcap later or earlier tonight, if we're making series picks, I'm going to pick the Golden State Warriors in six. But I do think this Dallas Mavericks team, man, is going to present some intriguing challenges. I just wonder, and we're going to talk about this with Dieter, if they're 
their offensive philosophy of playing five out, that's effective against teams that play traditional centers where you can force teams into rotations. Not so much potentially against a team like the Golden State Warriors who are going to start Draymond Green at center more than likely and have a guy like Otto Porter Jr. play some minutes at center too. Not as much of a mismatch against a lineup like that or lineups like that as it would be when you're playing a Rudy Gobert and or uh, DeAndre Ayton. So uh, when we come back, Dieter Kurtenbach joins us here on Hardwood Handicappers. This is the Hardwood Handicappers podcast. Dieter Kurtenbach is nice enough to give us a little bit more time today. We got to talk to him the other day on the show, but uh, never enough time to break down hoops. So Dieter's nice enough to give us a couple of extra minutes on this episode of Hardwood Handicappers. So we'll, we'll go over Dieter some of the, uh, you know, the basic stuff that we kind of covered in our initial conversation, but I'll open it up with this. When we look at this uh, matchup overall, the market is starting to move in the direction of the Dallas Mavericks from a series price standpoint. We've seen this price shrink. Uh, Warriors were as high as about minus 250 to win this thing. We're down to minus 225 with a total of plus 185. So I'll ask you this. Uh, do you think the market is correct at assuming that this is a tighter series than the initial minus 250 series price would indicate? I, I think that's fair. I think that uh, it, it's still an incredibly steep price to pay to get in on the Golden State Warriors. That's the market telling us pretty clearly, or at least the, the the book's telling us very clearly that they think the Warriors are not just going to win, but it's going to be relatively easy for them, right? And I don't get the sense, and maybe this is just being in the Bay Area and a bunch of hand-wringing, but I don't get the sense from folks around the NBA, I don't, certainly don't get the sense from folks here in the Bay that there is that level of confidence in the Warriors, considering that in both the Denver series they played in the first round and that Memphis series they just played in the second round, they showed a lot of warts. They showed a lot of issues. So uh, I, I think it's a very – I'd be surprised if it doesn't come down even further. I think it's a very fair number. Now, I, I am in on the Warriors on this. I have the Warriors in five, in fact. I like this matchup for them. I feel like I'm riding alone on that one in a, yeah. lot, in a lot of ways. Uh, so it's me and the books, which I guess is a pretty good spot to be until it isn't. Yeah, because I kind of thought, like, when you looked at the initial series price, uh, minus 250, which carries an implied probability of 71.4%, I just I felt yeah. like it was a little high, like, just given how well yeah. this Dallas Mavericks team has played. And if you look at it from a game-to-game -game standpoint, you can really make a strong argument that Dallas has been pretty undervalued. You go back to the end of the regular mm -hmm. season, they're 16-5 against the spread in their last 21 games. Uh, the Warriors, as you, mm -hmm. sa you said, right, showed their warts a little bit, but also uh, showed their overvalued nature recently. They failed to cover the last two games mm -hmm. against Denver. They were 2-4 and four against the spread against Memphis in that series. I still think this Warriors team's pretty good, but I, I still think they're carrying, at least up until this point, a price tag of like old Warriors teams somewhere in that range, as opposed to the team that's now, which is still a very good team, but nowhere near, I think, the level of that old Warriors uh, you know, core that used to be when they were at the peak. Mm -hmm. There's no question about that, and I, I do think that this is an interesting conversation when it comes to the framing of teams. These Warriors suck compared to the Warriors' right. dynastic run teams. I mean, these guys are terrible. But everybody else in the NBA is kind of terrible, too. This is the era of parity, and the Warriors are just another team amid that parity, but they're a team that has really good players, um, albeit not as good as it once was. This is a team that has championship understanding, expectations. They don't scare, full stop. Um, there's a lot of value in the run the Warriors had up until a couple of years ago. And that can't really be caked in to pricing. 
Um, maybe it is in the sense that you know the public is in on it. The books are giving them you know a little bit too much love. But the Dallas Mavericks have not been in this spot. They don't know what this is about. And I look at a team that is awesome. They play really good defense. Uh, they have a shot creator unlike any other in the NBA right now. But they're kind of a one-smoke sort of team. And I'm curious to see if the Warriors can sort of knock Dallas off of what it is they want to do. And if that happens, it can get out of hand pretty quick, as we saw in the Dallas series against the Phoenix Suns. Once the Dallas Mavericks figured out, oh, you just double-teamed Devin Booker, what happened from that point on? It was a blowout for Dallas. In the playoffs, you get these sort of massive score lines, these massive blowouts, because one one little move, sometimes done in desperation, could open up the floodgates. It's a game of adjustments, and the Warriors, they have a lot of practice making adjustments on the fly. They're nowhere near as good as they used to be, but they can still do five, six, seven things. They can still win in a bunch of different ways. It's just not as sexy or fun as it used to be, that's for sure. And I can understand why people are down on them, but you got to look at the competition, and there is no great team in the NBA today, and it's certainly not the Warriors. So one uh, one of the pieces that I read the other day, and uh, John Hollinger wrote this for the Athletic, uh, he talked about it, and you know we, we for the last few years, and the Warriors were kind of the impetus of this, right? Small ball, everybody was really excited about small ball, yeah. and and going a little bit smaller and playing a five like Draymond Green, who's like six foot eight and can switch all over the place. And, and Hollinger mm-hmm. talked about like this kind of new wave. This uh, he's called it space ball, where you're talking about teams who are yeah. playing five guys who can shoot, who are going to play five out, four out, and you're just going to go one on one, dribble, kick it out, get teams into rotation. And for a team like Dallas, who is set up to do that, it works really well when the fifth guy on the floor that you're opposing is a center like DeAndre Ayton or a center like Rudy Gobert. You're not going to face many matchups and lineups like that against the Golden State Warriors. And I would assume that is one of the few of the many reasons that you have the Warriors with an edge here, because that space ball edge is not going to be there against a team like Golden State with the lineups they put out there. Couldn't agree with that more. Uh, Draymond Green is going to play a lot of center in this series because he can get away with it, right? The Warriors don't have to worry about the wear and tear that playing center is going to take on Draymond. He'll be the strongest, biggest dude out there. Sorry, Davis Bertans. I just don't <laughs> trust you to bang in the low post. And as much as you know, Dwight Powell's a really good player, Maxi Kleba's a really good player, they're not physically intimidating. The most physically intimidating player on the Dallas Mavericks is their point guard, Luka Doncic. Uh, he is big, he is strong, he is there to get the friction on in the post. He'll post you up, and uh, it's a benefit to the Warriors that he doesn't have that great first step, right? He's brilliant. I'm trying not to take anything away from Luka. He's going to get his in this series. There's no question about it. But unlike a James Harden, when James Harden was good, unlike a John Morant in this past series before uh, we we lost John Morant, First step has been a real issue for the Warriors on the perimeter. They don't have a dude who can really stop that once Gary Payton the second went down. And even then, I would probably overrating Gary Payton the second just a little bit. When you have a guy like Luka, who is just going to methodically get to where he wants to go and is going to bump you the whole way there, you can throw a Draymond Green on him. You can throw a Jonathan Kaminga on him. You can definitely put an Andrew Wiggins on him. Steph Curry is much stronger than people give him credit for. He can give you a turn or two. And the big one is Clay Thompson, I think, can probably stay in front of Luka. Now, that is not a guarantee, but it is more likely, certainly, that him stopping John Morant, which we saw in games one and two, was never going to happen coming off of the two-leg surgeries that Clay Thompson has. That used to be his role, right? The guy who was on the perimeter would be the point guard stopper. Chris Paul is still looking at Clay Thompson in his sleep from years and years and years ago. Uh, I think that he can give you some solid defensive turns against the Luka Doncic. And so you add that 
You add the fact that they're going to be playing their best lineups because they don't have to worry about size from Dallas. You look at the way that Dallas plays defense and, and particularly the success that they had against the Warriors in the regular season, which people love to cite but don't like to break down, where Dallas was trapping Steph Curry, double-teaming him, a la Doc Rivers and the Los Angeles Clippers from all those years ago in the Warriors playoff series and big games against the Clippers, uh, which tells you how long ago it was that Doc Rivers was still there and Clippers-Warriors was a big deal. But uh, trapping, all all you're doing is giving Draymond Green the ball in a four-on-three situation. So uh, I I, I like this matchup. Maybe I'm over overvaluing the Warriors in the sense that I trust that they can still execute the things that they have executed for years and years and years. Uh, But this will be the first time that they'll sort of get the opportunity to do that because Denver could throw a center on the floor that was quality, obviously, in in Jokic, but also DeMarcus Cousins for 48 minutes. And Memphis, I mean, they were built to punch. (laughs) Their entire entire ethos is beat the living daylights out of their opponent and worry about scoring later. Uh, That is not Dallas's ethos, and I, I do think that plays right into the Warriors' hands because they're still, I think, I think, I think, I can't guarantee it, but I think really good at the things that helped them sort of get over the hump all those years ago. Yep, and so we flip this on, on its head because we talk about um, – actually, no, real quick, before we flip it, before we flip it uh, and you've kind of alluded to this a couple of times, so when we're talking about the way that the Mavericks operate on offense, we, the, the overall scheme of them you know, spacing everything out might not work as well against Golden State, uh, I will ask the obvious yeah. question then that everybody is going to ask, uh, which is what do you think they do with Luka Doncic overall? Uh, I've heard, you know, hey, you can't put Draymond on him. He might foul out uh, pretty easily against a, a guy like Luka Doncic. I would assume that Andrew Andrew Wiggins, who kind of took on the role of you know defensive stopper because Gary Payton wasn't available and took on John Morant mostly mm-hmm. down the stretch, is probably going to be number one on that list. Uh, am I correct in assuming yeah. that? Yes. Yeah. Yes, you are. It will be Wiggins as often as possible, but they will rotate bodies around. Um, you, know, you also have to take into account the physicality of the playoffs and what players are allowed to get away with on the defensive side. It's not to say that the fouls won't be an issue, that they won't be called, that the Warriors might not get in trouble. Hell, it might lose in the game or two. But it's just, it's not the same threshold. And the deeper in the playoffs you go, the more you can bump a little bit. And Doncic isn't somebody who's going to be flopping around left and right. And to his credit, you know, looking for that foul on the perimeter. He, he enjoys the contact a little bit and isn't sort of, he's built to whine, as all NBA players, it seems, are. But he's not built to, to make a spectacle out of a little bit of contact on the perimeter. I think they just rotate dudes through. And I think that the big thing is that the Warriors just play one-on-one. And this is the James Harden, Houston Rockets, LeBron James, Cleveland Cavaliers model that the Warriors have done, I mean, for how many playoff series over the years. One-on-one, stay in front of him, make him work for anything that he gets, but don't let anyone else get going. Because that guy's going to get his. Whether you throw one guy, two guy, or three guys on him, that guy's going to get his. But one player cannot beat a team of five. That, that's the Warriors' ethos to its core. That's Steve Kerr's ethos to his core. He's a former role player. What else would it be? And we've seen James Harden get his, and the Houston Rockets completely come up empty. We've seen LeBron James have some of the most spectacular games in the history of the NBA Finals. Cavs lost. Uh, they're going to put one guy on him, hope he can stay in front of him. I feel like they can, but we'll see. And just make sure that Spencer Dinwiddie and Jalen Brunson or Reggie Bullock, just making sure nobody else gets theirs 
if you can stay to your man who aren't moving very much and the guy who is Garden Luca has the short straw on that possession can at least make them work for it, the Warriors are going to like their opportunities. It's when they have to double team, when they have to overload, that's when they're going to get in trouble because Luca is such a brilliant passer at six foot nine. He can throw it over dudes' heads. Now you're playing four on three basketball, and that is not a good thing for the Warriors to be doing. That's the thing the Warriors want to be doing on the other side of the court. Yep. So now we look at this in terms of the way that Dallas handles um, Golden State. And what I think is really interesting is, you know, the previous two opponents that they have faced, which is Utah and uh, which is Phoenix, it, you know, Phoenix runs a lot of those Spain pick and rolls, but it's still generally like high pick and roll, you know, high volumes of that. Yeah. There's not going to be the same yeah. thing here with Golden State. There's a lot of handoffs. Uh, there's a lot of chaos uh, when it comes to defending the Golden State mm-hmm. Warriors. How do you think the Warriors handle the uh, the breakout defensive play of this this trio? I'll call them because Frank Nelikina busted out late in that series. He was yeah. great. Um, Dorian Finney-Smith, Reggie Bullock. Uh, do you think that these guys are going to have the same success? Because what they did against Devin Booker and specifically Chris Paul in allowing them to force these turnovers, it was immense in terms of leading the Mavericks toward a series victory. But I, I find a high, I have a hard time looking at those three and seeing that they're going to have the same impact, mainly because the Warriors just run their offense differently than their previous two opponents. Yeah, no question about it. This is not a team that's just going to run the high pick and roll. They will sprinkle it in, I think, a little bit more in this series. I've been getting those hints from folks around the Warriors that, hey, the high pick and roll is going to be a a factor in this series because they want to hunt Luka Doncic a little bit on the defensive end. They want to make him work because they know that the Mavericks are going to try to make Steph Curry work, as the Memphis Grizzlies did, as the Mavericks obviously did against Chris Paul. The amount of actions that Chris Paul got himself into on the defensive side in that series against Dallas, you can make a very clear argument that that's what turned the series towards the Dallas Mavericks, that they just tired Chris Paul out, and hey, after that, it's game on. You just turn basically the Phoenix Suns into what they were before Chris Paul showed up, which was pretty sorry. Um, I am curious to see how it goes down. I'm very curious to see if the Mavericks blitz, if they double team Steph Curry, if they try to get the ball out of his hands. If they do that, there will be some success. There's no question about it. They are really connected. They rotate as well, if not better than any team in the league defensively. But four-on-three basketball is a death wish. And the Warriors are not going to have very many lineups where they have more than one non-shooter on the floor. And that non-shooter will be Draymond Green. And we know that Draymond can make things happen with the ball in his hands if he's aggressive, if he's not thinking too much out there. I think this could be a big series for Jordan Poole. Uh, and, And perhaps the entire series hinges on if it's a big series for Jordan Poole. Because if Jordan Poole is out there, and he's able to do somewhat of the Spencer Dinwiddie, Jalen Brunson thing, where it's basically like, hey, I don't have anything on this side. Give it over to the other side, and let's see what Jordan Poole's got going on. Uh, that, that could be really, really dangerous for this Dallas defense because they, you can't just rotate away a guy who can beat dudes off the dribble one-on-one. You, you can't, when you have two of those guys on the floor at the same time, it's great that you have a great team defense, but what you need are dudes. You need mm-hmm. stoppers. You need elite on-ball defenders. And that's not, I think, something that the, the Dallas Mavericks have. They have good defenders. They have really good defenders. They play great team defense. But when I look at that roster, when I watch them play, I don't think to myself, oh, you don't want to get matched up with that dude. I think every one of them is gettable in their own way. And collectively, that makes them really impressive. Uh, they're exceptionally well-coached, but they don't have that alpha. They don't have that that true number one. And if you want to roll out Frank Milikina as that dude, 
I guess you can, I, I guess I can buy that argument because he is a really good defensive player, but the Warriors will love that because he's not giving you anything on the offensive end. Yep. So one of the things that was really interesting with Phoenix did, and actually to give Luka Doncic and the Mavericks credit, uh, they kind of schemed it mm-hmm. out and Doncic put a little bit more effort in, but I think everybody remembers game yes. two in which the second half, the, the Suns were like, all right, come here, Doncic. Like, we're going to put you through everything. We're going to work you. Yep. We're going to exhaust yep. you. We're going to make you look like the poor defender a lot of people think you are. But that's also like mm-hmm. kind of what we're talking about, right? That's more a methodical, like traditional pick-and-roll offense. You have a point guard who's going Very to single direct. guys out. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Warriors yeah. don't exactly do that. How, how does that change in terms of the way they get Doncic involved defensively? Well, there's nowhere to hide for him. Yeah. That's the trick, right? Uh, it, it's all sleight of hand. If he's looking – I've just seen this a million times with James Harden. You know, you think, oh, we're hiding him in the corner. The corner is not hiding. There is no safe spot on the floor. Uh, this again, not to say that this is a perfect offense from the, that the Warriors run when it's as talented as it was for years and years and years, it wasn't going to be stopped. Now there are obviously deficiencies in talent comparatively to those teams, but it's still talented. It's still really good. You're just relying on guys like Jordan Poole and Jonathan Kaminga and Andrew Wiggins to give you serious positive output, which is not something you can necessarily rely on. I guess Clay Thompson could be added into that fold too, but when everything is back cuts and drives, when everything is, you know, five motions for every one that the ball makes, yeah, there's no place to hide. There's no place for Luka Doncic to go where he'll be safe so long as the Warriors are in a position consistently to execute, you know, the incisive pass that, that will end the possession. Um, but the movement, the constant motion, when the Warriors are running around, it's, I don't know how you can stay connected for that long. Maybe Dallas is just that good. Maybe they are. I do want to give them a lot of credit because I think they're a really good basketball team. I just have a hard time. I just have a hard time seeing anyone being that good because they're going to lean. The Warriors are going to lean on this system that they have run for years and years and years. And everybody on that team knows like the back of their hand, they're going to lean on that again and again and again. And if it's not Jordan Poole, guess what? You left Clay Thompson open and, Oh, you're trapping Steph Curry. Congratulations. Here's Draymond green doing the short roll and running the four on three. And you, know, you th- might think you can leave Kevon Looney, and you can if he's away from the basket, but he's a really good passer for a totally unassuming big man, and he will finish at the hoop. I mean, he's not like, you know, great. He's not, you know, Joel Embiid or anything, but he's an offensive weapon to a certain degree. And Jonathan Kaminga can just jump and suddenly dunk. It doesn't matter where he is on the floor. Um, I, I, I'm really interested to see it. I'm really interested to see it because if the Dallas Mavericks can shut this down, if they can do this with just great team defenders, but not one truly great individual elite defender, well, they've given the entire league a blueprint, and the Warriors are probably done. And I'm not saying it's not possible. I'm just saying I haven't seen it before, and I'm very curious to find out what that is. So we'll get you out of here on this. Uh, you do like the Warriors. What's the uh, what's the final series look like? We're talking about like Warriors in five, Warriors in six. What do you think? Yeah, I have I have Warriors in five just because I like the value in that. Um, I, I mean. I think that everybody is in on Warriors in six. And if you're saying Warriors in seven, you're not even really making a prediction. You might as well just say Mavericks in seven because there's more money in that. I think, I think, you know, Warriors win the first two split on the road and you come back home and get it in five. I just, I, I just don't see a lot of complexity to Dallas's situation. And I'd like to give deference to smart teams that play, good team basketball. Uh, the Mavericks play great team basketball on defense, obviously, but they're so heliocentric on offense. And some of the things that we were talking about just a week ago, 
with yeah. the Dallas Mavericks, Luca holding on to the ball too much, you know, <laughs> just the, the general nature of having a superstar player who needs the ball in his hands for 20 seconds on the shot clock. Like that was a big issue. And I think that there's just been a massive overcorrection in the narrative because the Suns collapsed. Dallas took full advantage to their credit. And now we're trying to cover our butts, pretending as if we always saw this coming from the Dallas Mavericks, which, by the way, I did have. I had the Mavericks in seven in this series, and I got the the best slip to prove it. So uh, I just feel like there's a massive overcorrection from a market that was fairly all in on the Phoenix Suns. And now we have to pretend as if the Dallas Mavericks are actually a juggernaut because we built the Suns up and well, the Suns just went down in very, very impressive fashion, complete collapse job, complete choke job. Um, I just don't, I just don't like that narrative. I want to hedge against it immediately. Yeah, no, it's a fair point. Suns uh, were reported by multiple books, highest liability in terms of the conference semifinal series uh, for Mm -hmm. those bets. So uh, this has turned on its head completely in terms of perception. Dieter Kurtenbach again, nice enough to give us a couple more minutes today. Uh, Dieter, appreciate it, man. Thank you very much. Always. And if the Warriors don't win in five, you never talk to me.